Last November 16th, on the 16th of November 2016, I suffered a heart attack. And so it was one of those moments where I came back from it that I didn't have to prove anything to myself anymore. And that was more of a burden, that proving it to myself than having to prove it to other people. So I was like, okay. That was the legendary Conrad Anker, the alpinist who's spent a lifetime and therefore a life worth living coined by his mentor Muggs, in the mountains, from the Himalaya to Antarctica to Pakistan's Karakoram to Denali to home in Bozeman, Montana. Hi, I'm Lindsay Dyer, big mountain professional skier, and this is my new podcast, Showing Up, a conversation, athlete to athlete, sharing the secret lives of action sports athletes and leaders in the outdoor space. This podcast is meant for anyone who's ever wondered what it's like to make a career out of the outdoors, as well as to hopefully inspire the unicorn in you to follow that impossible dream in the outdoors that you may have had. It's really hard to say what Conrad's most known for because his career has spanned over three decades and continues today because he's in Antarctica again. Most recently, you'd probably know him from the first ascent of The Shark's Fin and Meru, the film. But he also has three ascents of Mount Everest, one without supplemental oxygen, as well as the discovery of the body of George Mallory, the preeminent Everest explorer of the 1920s. In the outdoor space, Conrad has this reputation of being a master of suffering, from these decades of spending months at a time in the highest, coldest, gnarliest places on the planet, truly pushing the potential of humans. And you'll hear me in this interview trying to get to the root of where all that comes from. But to Conrad, suffering just doesn't seem like that big of a deal, whether it's in the mountains or something personal at home. He just sees it as part of the human condition and something interesting to explore. Conrad's a gem, and I hope you like the show. Okay, we're on. Hello, this is Conrad Anker, C-O-N-R-A-D-A-N-K-E-R, conrad.anker at gmail.com. It's the 28th of July, 2017, here with Lindsay, (laughs) timestamp. Let's roll. Could you just conduct this whole thing for me, then? (laughs) <laughs> I think you have more practice than me. No, I have no experience with unicorns. so. You are one, though. I'm a unicorn? Yeah, for sure. Really? It's not easy being a unicorn, is it? A, a metaphysical one or an actual one? You're just a rare bird. It's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> I like that. So yeah. I'll roll with it. I mean, I feel so lucky that you made the time. Thank you. Most certainly. How's your uh, How's your show been? It's been great. Um, a lot of memories coming to Salt Lake and being part of this business and watching it grow. So. And now you're like a political figure even. Well. Did you ever expect? I didn't think I was going to be a political figure. I like to speak out, but I'm not going to run for office. I'll just put that out there on the record. <laughs> I'm an atheist and I think football's dumb. So that's an unelectable platform here in the United States. So <laughs> it gets me out of those sort of things. But um, I'm not running for office. But, but I will hold those in office to to be responsible and 
speak truth to power and that, just stand up for the things that are important to us. Is that your next like? Is that your your next big climb? Has it shifted to that a little bit uh, Not, as far as goals or getting into things? I mean, engaging in politics is like walking up a sand dune in the middle of summer in flip flops. You're gonna just burn your feet. <laughs> Not something I want to be spending my time doing, but yeah, if the situation was normal and we didn't have an affront onto public lands, it would be quite different than what it is now. It's almost more a responsibility, a burden rather than... Yeah, and we we have to think about future generations. I mean, we're here for a very short period of time, and we're going to live out this life um, with a high-energy consumption lifestyle, but... What will the future generations, what's their, what are they going to inherit from us? Mm-hmm. And especially for where we are now, knowing what is happening, there is a responsibility that we have to speak out and to ensure that those future generations have the opportunities that our generations were given to us. Is there a sense of uncertainty when you were growing up uh, as far as like where we were going to be as a country or to not take things for granted. I, I feel like the world that I grew up in, it just seemed like a given. All of these wild spaces, our government, everything seems so solid. I n- it never even occurred to me that they might not be. Yeah, there was certainly a sense of uh, things were, were just fine. And it was okay. like this arrogance, perhaps, that we were the strongest nation on the planet and we could do anything we wanted and we had everything there. And um, now we realize that um, the world is very much connected. It's very small, and we have an ever-increasing population putting a greater demand on resources from food, shelter, and um, clothing, all those three basic needs that we have to, in, including in food, water. Um, Be more conscious about. Yeah. So okay, we need so to ignore it. But let's, let's start with uh, one of the ways I've been going about this is to, to start at the beginning you know, and how you are shaped into, into where you are today. And just let's just go through your story. Well, I was a hyperactive young boy, so I had too much energy. My parents were like, okay, no sugar, more exercise. That was, um, they didn't want to uh, medicate me, which I'm very thankful they were not into it. And my mother still is, she doesn't like doctors or hospitals or medication. And so I inherited that from her. And but, where was um, that? That was in California. So I was born in San Francisco and my father's side of the family. In the city? In the city, yeah. Wow. Living on Mississippi Street. <laughs> um, yeah, so you grew up there. Like, put it in a story. How'd you get into climbing? Like, wh- how was elementary school? What what yeah, was it like? The school was, was good. Like? I was kind of a, an odd kid. <laughs> Did you feel like you didn't fit in? I didn't fit in. I had a weird name. I was gangly. I wasn't. I liked the sports, but they didn't make sense to me. So I remember finally at seventh grade being big enough to sign up for football and playing football and be like, oh, this is brutal. <laughs> I'm getting clocked all the time and this is sort of bullying, which I wanted to get away from and now it's back again and I don't want it and it's not the uh, the right thing. And so fortunately, scouting was a great way to uh, to get in there and... Boy scouting? Boy scouting, yeah. Cool. So I had a scout master that was, uh, he had a Korean war vet and he was convinced that all 
American boys were turning into a bunch of candy asses, and it was his job. What does candy asses mean? Soft? Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A candy Mm -hmm. ass. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it was his responsibility to put character and value in. And it's good because you want to have people that are other than your parents to do that with you. Because, of course, you have a special relationship with your parents, and you can, um, as a child, you can manipulate them, you can pull in their heartstrings, all this and that. But when you have someone that's as a parent figure but not a parent, they can be like, well, you have to take care of yourself. You have to change your socks when you're outdoors, little simple things like that. But also a sense of decency that um, if you have it from your parents and then you have mentors that are out there, they then solidify that sense of decency that you might have started with. And someone outside of your parents that you can look up to. Would you call that your first role model that you wanted to be like? Yeah, they're my dad's buddies that we'd go out hiking with. And they were, um, I always remember being in awe of um, their gear. So we'd go out backpacking for two weeks in the Sierra every summer with a, a mule and donkeys and four kids and my parents, this little troop of six people, and just go out for two weeks. And wow. it was hiking up peaks in the Sierras, checking them out and sort of exploring. Um, and then from hiking up mountains uh, to scrambling and then technical climbing, that progression. So, Who did you do that with? Um, I was introduced to it with my dad and his buddies, but it was kind of like rappelling on gold line and top roping easy stuff. And then uh, it wasn't until I was kind of broke out on my own and then uh, met some climbing partners and um, people to show me the ropes. So when you say broke out, like, did you leave home? What What do you mean by that? Yeah, I'd, um, I was went and climbed Mount Rainier with my friend, and he was. We were both sixteen or seventeen or something. We drove up there, and it was without a, a guide, you just said you figured it out. Yeah, we go up there. We figured we knew. We had to pass the gauntlet of the rangers there, and they were like testing us and this and that, and we didn't have the means to hire a guide service and mm-hmm. they were convinced that we were going to either pull us out of a crevasse or we were going to fall off the mountain or we'd freeze or something like that but um and had you done you know work in high snowy not that much but i mean we knew what it was and we could but we didn't summit we, we suffered epically and <laughs> had a good time um, wait so that first trip you didn't make it up is what you're no. saying no why weather or it just you started too late weather or? incompetence youth uh-huh um all those things so she humbled you right away. Yeah, you got it. It's a learning experience. You take yeah. things from that, and then you go on. You know, I feel like for some reason, some people there's um, things in youth that at the time they seem really gnarly to have to go through, and then later they become a gift of sorts. You know, a warriorship. Yeah. Is that where you learn to suffer? Like I feel like you're probably the best human I've ever known from a distance, right? <laughs> Must know, to know yeah. suffering. Like, where did you learn how to suffer? Oh, gracefully. I guess gracefully. Yeah. Maybe I'm a stoic. Um, For or, sure you're a stoic. <laughs> you're like the epitome. But the toughest classes I had in university are the ones I remember the most. Mm. So they were, I was like, oh yeah, that professor was tough and it really demanded a lot and you had to learn and you had to do the right thing. And those are the ones, but the easy A's, do you remember them? No, you don't. They're just, it's, so the things that demand much of the practitioner, of the student, of the person, those are the ones that have lasting effect on them. Hmm. So how do you apply that to everyday life? Everyday life, well... Like, um, I just wonder, is it easier to be on a challenging expedition than it is to be in everyday life? That's not easier. It's just a different thing. Um, so life is great because there's so many, it's a kaleidoscope of 
images and people and experiences and places and stuff that you I do. I find that so confusing at times. I think on an expedition, your goals are clear, you know. Oh, yeah. That makes it simple. I mean, you're there, you go to climb a mountain, and that's why I like climbing, being a hyperactive person, that I have to be in the moment. I can't I have to focus on that it next demands move. That. Yeah, and if I make a mistake, I can hurt myself. And so bowling doesn't have that same, I can be distracted quite easily. And so you can afford to be distracted. Yeah, it's easy. It's casual. Um, so, and it's not for everyone. This high intensity situations that are force one to, to focus on it. But I think that those situations, whether it's in business, whether it's in family, whether it's in recreation, bring out the best in you when you have to perform. Rise to the occasion. Yeah, and that's one of these. They had these great stories about Sir Ernest Shackleton, and he was great on expedition. He was a wonderful leader, but. Day-to-day life, he wasn't exceptional, he wasn't particularly well-organized, and he was challenged by a variety of things. But when he was on expedition, he rose to that occasion to be a really determined leader and a leader of, by example and, and someone that they could look up to. And that same trait is a commonality in that. So take the harder road, and it will bring you rewards. Not monetary, but intrinsic, intellectual, self-awareness type of rewards. Absolutely. Okay, so you're 16. You just attempted your first attempt at, at Rainier on your own. Where do we go from there? Oh, gosh. Then uh, some rock climbing. I remember climbing Wind Ridge in, in El Dorado Canyon. It's a 5'6", but being completely enthralled by it. And, and then progressing more with um, rock climbing and then being here in in Salt Lake City attending the University of Utah and uh, that was really where my skills as a climber came into their own. Then did you start going on a big expedition? Yeah first expedition I tried oh it was 1987 went up to uh, the Kitchatna Spires drove from here in Salt Lake City up to the uh, the mountain range there and Climbed Gurney Peak with a bunch of friends, and that was a great learning experience. And then 88 was my first trip to the Himalayas. Where did Muggs come in? He was uh, an active climber here in Salt Lake City, and um, we were both hanging out. So during that time in Salt Lake? Yeah. Okay. So I was up at the gate buttress, and it had uh, rained like it does now in the afternoon in the summertime, and then it dries up. And so I had this thing where I'd go climb the five six and five sevens on this circuit after it rained looking for gear that people had repelled off of (laughs) bail gear so i'd solo these routes and come back down and see if i could find gear (laughs) dual purpose go have fun but also try to find some gear so um, you're treasure hunting yeah i mean it's not i mean but yeah it was different then and um but then I remember Muggs was in his van, came back down. I didn't know he was in his van. He watched me, and he struck up a conversation. I was like completely, whoa, he actually talked to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so he had been something, someone you looked up to. Yeah, I mean, I knew of him. At the time, I was working at a gear shop, which was sort of my introduction to the outdoor industry here, the outdoor recreation community. And so he'd come in and buy a brick of chalk, and we'd be like, whoa, there's Muggs. And he's legit. He's 14 years older than I am, and yeah. so he'd been to the Himalayas. He'd done yeah. these, he'd climbed... Fitzroy in Patagonia and climb Mount Hunter in Alaska. So, of course, he was legend Mm -hmm. and that he would actually take time out to say hello to me. I was like, whoa. But then he, it was good. He was like, well, you've got to, before we go do something, you've got to climb Denali and you've got to climb El Capitan. So, 
worked through those things. And it was about, I think, 84 or so that we met, 85. And then from 89 to 92, for three years, we climbed pretty closely. And then, unfortunately, on the 21st of May, 92, he was lost in a crevasse fall in the south buttress of Denali. Like, I'm curious how you went to the, the high alpine. You know, like, why did you go that route versus a lot of guys stay around Yosemite? Oh, probably because I was too weak for hard rock climbing. I wasn't... I think most people would say you were too tough. I mean... I'm too... I know, I'm cold. not, like, gifted for that. But I, yeah, I could. I had a good hang factor and a good uh, suffering quotient. So I could deal with the cold and deal with the low-grade misery that climbing at altitude entails. Where do you think you got it? Probably um, from my mother and my father. I mean, they're... <laughs> that's where they were from so um and from their heritage yeah i think so or my mother is from east to? germany so she was prussian they were peasants they were potato farmers and bakers and <laughs> railroad switchyard type i mean and then the war happened and her world fell apart i mean she saw that uh, the firebombing of Dresden at age 12 so it really affected her and to her to meet my father, who was stationed in Germany after the war, and then they met, and my dad brought her back to California, where he's, his side of the family's from, and had been there since 1853. But my mother was always like, you don't know how lucky you have it, and mm. she would never really explain what she went through as a young person, but that it was always a, that we shouldn't take what we have for granted. And it's kind of interesting that both uh, uh, with Renan and Jimmy, um, two guys that we climbed Meru with, which is a seminal climb, something that ties back to Muggs, and all of us had immigrant parents that came to the United States. And, and worked everything. Yeah, we always had, yeah, we had this, this commonality of like, yeah, your parents were like, you don't know how good you have it, and this and that, and don't be lazy and did, work hard. Did you almost feel like you owed it to them? For everything that they went through, and to give you this life, I don't know, I, I, not in that sense that I that, that I owed them or anything like that, but that that you would kind of be there for what they couldn't. Yeah, what their expectations. A good parent will have expectations and boundaries for their children's. Um, so yeah, I, I, that was a question I have on like, what does it mean to be a good parent now? You know, in in where the roles are switched, and you have to create those boundaries and expectations in a healthy way. Like, what does it mean to you to be a good dad? Um, what does being a good dad look like? Well, speaking to your children as adults. Um, Is that harder than climbing, being no. a, a dad? Yeah, it's all good fun. I have a unique family situation. So, 1999, I was on an expedition with Alex Lowe. He lost his life in, a, in a, an avalanche, and then. After that, his widow, Jennifer, and I got together, um, grew in love, and then in 2001, we married. And so at the time, uh, the boys were 10, 7, and 3 when they lost their biological father, Alex Lowe. So I came into a family sort of 0 to 60 quickly, mm -hmm. but um, I had good parents, so they were the values they had, I was able to, to translate into that, treat them fairly, be a parent by example. And we three simple rules that we had were um, learning to play an instrument, um, learn a second language, and attend college. 
not necessarily graduate, but just attend, be part of it. And then if you want to graduate, then good for you, but hoping that they do. And so two of the three have fulfilled all three of them. And why were those the three that were important to you? Uh, language and music builds neural pathways, so it's good for developing mind to practice that, and you can learn it. Learning a second language takes you out of this sense of the isolationism and the exceptionalism that p citizens of the United States have. Like, the whole world is... Revolves around us. Yeah, and <laughs> we've got convenience stores everywhere, and we have everything we want we can buy, and we can get a bigger truck, and it's sort of on and on. And so when you learn a second language, you realize that there's many cultures you on You have this to planet. learn another culture. Yeah. And what about boundaries, like you said, and expectations? The boundaries were, don't get into the trouble. I mean, probably more over a sense of decency, how to treat other people and to, to be with them by example. So, Did you deal with any anger from them at their dad, feeling like he left them? No, it was a very wholesome and balanced and, um, yeah. That's lucky. Talked about things openly, so there wasn't, um, yeah, they... They're doing well. I mean, we'll never know um, how things like that, how loss affects individuals, and then each individual is a little bit different, and how does that um, come through to you. But um, children are resilient. You give them a lot of love, and they'll, they'll bounce back. And what they're looking for is guidance and affirmation that they are of value and that they're cared for. And people aside from biological parents can provide that and that you build that with trust. Do you think it's ever hard for them to live up to <laughs> what you guys have created? I mean, they're already pretty impressive humans, but that's gotta be tough, huh? Yeah, I hope not to put that, uh, that pressure on them. So I've always been, eh, do what you want, do what you love to do, but find something that you're passionate about, but don't, you're not expected to become a mountain climber expose it to them so they can learn about it and know what the skills are required and, and some of the things that go with that. Mm -hmm. Nice. Okay, so back to life trajectory. Yeah. Where are we? Um, I was here in Salt Lake City and sort of graduated from university and then started going on expeditions. What, what, what did you study? Uh, parks, recreation, and tourism. Ah. So, so what did you expect to do with that? Um, I had no really... I mean, it was like my, my parents were like, you've got to go to university, you've got to finish. So I got that done. And then I worked as a carpenter and picked up a little side work here and there. I got free raincoats and stuff from <laughs> the company I work with now. So there was all part of um, what that is. So mm -hmm. You were following your passion. Yeah. I wanted to spend as much time outdoors. So, And I think I, knowing that, that it wasn't the pursuit of money was this the key to happiness it was how much time could I spend outdoors so um, okay so in Salt Lake um, you just graduated Parks and Rec yeah then you went to Yosemite yeah climbing in Yosemite uh, are you camping out like camping out hanging out doing uh, getting out after roots and sort of but each time you go climbing you build the experience that you add into your repertoire of what you can do and then that experience is the teacher for your secondary journeys and stuff were there any um, books or things or articles or people that you were following or religions? I feel like that time of life is where people are really exploring why we're here or yeah. and what the purpose is. And At the, my first trip to the Himalayas was uh, eye-opening because I thought, oh, I'd go there. I'm going to climb some 6,000-meter peak. It's going to be this beautiful ice route, and it's going to be about me. How badass am I? What did I do? Look at this. How I, old are I you? 25, 26, mm -hmm. something so like that. Like, 
trying to conquer a mountain. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I'm cool. I'm, this is it. I'm going to do a new route and climb a mountain. Mm -hmm. This is great. Everyone's going to love me? I don't know if that was the motivation, but I'd be cool. I could yeah. say, oh, yeah. Wouldn't mm -hmm. that be gnarly, so to say? Yeah. But what came away from that was the people that were living in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And so for them, they're not on the same rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs as we are. So they're, we've taken care of food, shelter, clothing, and we're onto this self-actualization, if you look at it like that. And then many people here, because we have that. But there, it's like, it's Survival. a daily struggle to, mm -hmm. to feed and clothe your family. So that was a... Chop wood, carry water, yeah. survive. Subsistence farming being a shepherd, being a, a goat herd, things like that. So it was, but it, what I realized is that the people were really happy. They were, they were content with what they were. And so it wasn't, it's not contingent upon financial and material gain. Rather, it's where you are and what you can think about it. So that was a, an insightful moment. Did it make you want to be there more, just around the people, learning, picking up from that lifestyle? Because obviously, you It's nice to be there with the people. I'll never be part of that culture. Be who you are and what you are. We don't want, there's all this talk about cultural appropriation and, which I, to me is no big deal. If you want to learn about Native American culture and, and reverence for the natural planet and, and, and how that is, that's great. Cultural imperialism though, that, that's where I take issue with. I mean, why would I go over and just say, my former religion is the best and the only way and the superior and you need to come over into that. So that's a different, part of that so did I appropriate what they were doing over there um, hopefully the smiles and the and the and the being courteous and being kind for the people there and but yet at the same time they want what we have they want the media they want the the world the of comfort the comfort and um, the media that we pump out of here whether it's television shows and TV things and all that stuff so it's really um, some interesting times that from then to now the grass is greener like I feel like I went to India at that time looking mm -hmm. for answers assuming that I could pick up what they seem to have around in happiness and and then finding out wow did I have a lot to learn yeah. and who was I to think that I could go volunteer um, to help make their lives better when um, but yeah who was I to think that <laughs> Yeah, there's a great a great quote that if you're coming over to help me because you think I have I need help, then get out of my hair. But if you're coming over here to part of your something that you're doing for yourself to help you become who you are, let me join you on that path. Yeah, I, I was thinking I was going to learn how to be happy from them, but they didn't know how to be happy any better than I did in my experience. Yeah, um, and I wasn't sure if even me being there did any service. Yeah. But we can synthesize happiness, not, don't think of synthesizing like artificial music or tires made out of oil, but creating it in our minds that we practice happiness. And that's a key thing that by smiling and by being gracious and, and thinking positive things, it makes you positive and happy. I mean, it's so simple, but who would have... Like, give me some examples. Um, just looking, when you're in a tough situation, be an optimist. Um, just choose to be. Yeah. To say I mean, have all these sayings. Yeah, like you can't change the situation, but you can change your outlook. You can change your attitude, and those are relevant. So, if you are in a tough spot, then you can come back around and and be positive about it. I feel like you've gone to the nth degree of what that looks like. 
I mean, how many days on marrow did you guys not eat? And how cold was it? Like, I just can't, I can't even imagine. Yeah, but that, I mean, that wasn't that, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> That's what <laughs> I'm saying. If yeah. that wasn't that bad, then like, what is bad? You know, like, I feel like sometimes when you, when you've really been to what you think is the bottom, it actually gives you more strength. So what's the bottom for you? The bottom is death and death of people close to you. Mm-hmm. But other, I mean, as long as you're... So that's as bad as it gets. Yeah. That's, that you're, you're no longer alive. So, but yeah, there's... So do you feel you like know. you've died in this? I, one of my goals is to die before I die. Um, you know, let, in some ways, the ego die so yep. that you can truly be in the moment. Do you feel like you've gone there? With uh, last November 16th, on the uh, 16th of November 2016, I suffered a heart attack. Right. And so asymptomatic coming in out of an older age. So it was one of those moments where I came back from it that I didn't have to prove anything to myself anymore. And that was more of a burden that proving it to myself than having to prove it to other people. So I was like, okay. What do you mean? Explain that more. What exactly happened? I was on the side of a mountain, and I had a uh, uh, heart attack, a blockage. Did you know you were having a heart attack? Yeah, it was, and I didn't, I was asymptomatic. I'd been tested that August and had a solid heart and was good, but um, it came out of nowhere. And so um, a blockage, and for nine hours from when we self-rescued to when I got the the stent put in was uh, definitely a... uh, Did you think you were going to die? Is that the closest you... You really thought? Um, it was slow. It was like my conversation with a recycler came in. And it was like, yeah, is it time to put your carbon back into the the big circle? <laughs> so usually, I mean, two other times I had near-death experiences, but it was instant. It was an avalanche that came through, and you're like, yeah, I made it through, and you're shouting. And you're mm-hmm. like, whoa. You're like saturated with endorphins and adrenaline and all that stuff. And But this was slower motion give me more time to think Mm. so things get real clear then i imagine huh did your life not flash before your eyes but i didn't know it was was it just another focus on what you needed to do yeah it was just breathing figuring out how to take the pain off my chest and breathe and so had i not been fit and trained at what i knew how to do and practiced breathing it would have been a lot worse so what did what what did you take away to be more present, to be in the moment, focus on what's good in life. I guess those are sort of... And what <laughs> is good in life? Because I think that sometimes it is hard to know. I think, and it, it seems like things get really clear when you're in that space. Yeah, human interaction is probably one of the good things in life. And that's why climbing is so relevant to me. So if you go to a climbing gym, everyone's supporting everyone else. The the adversary is gravity. It's not another group of humans. So you team up and you want to work together. And you have and to s- work together. Yeah. So there's no I in team. I mean, that's sort of a a, a phrase that's used commonly, but um, yeah, there's truth to it. So. Yeah, that leads me to like, how do you pick your team? Like, how did you pick those guys on Mira? How did you you pick your life partner? Gosh, it happens organically. It mm-hmm. just and. And listen to your intuition. And it's like, oh, this person doesn't strike me the right way or I'm nervous around them. And it, there's 7.4 billion people on this planet. And so some people are g- you're going to be close to, other people you're not going to be close to. So 
Um, and that's something that um, I look to find optimists and cultivate friendships with optimists. Um, people that are dour and negative and haters and all that stuff. It's like, great, have a wonderful life, but I'm not going to invest time in that connection to that person. So they're, um, and maybe they get energy from other people that are dark and angry, but I want to find the happy people. <laughs> wonder if we can versus why we can't. Yeah, that's a good uh -huh. way of looking at that. It's okay. a pretty wild combination from elation, like standing on the summit of Everest, to losing your best friend right next to you. I mean, death right in there. And um, and fame, and you've seen it all. You've yeah. The covers of magazines that have... Uh, but I'm always looking serious. I want to be smiling on them. <laughs> 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 this is, yeah, the incredibly crazy life that I have. So that's kind it's of the image people put on you, too. Yeah, you have to live with that. So whenever you try to change it. Have so. you ever struggled with identity? Like, if you weren't a climber, like, I know I have, um, where it's become a... Yeah, my identity is climbing. It certainly is. I mean, I, I wouldn't know what to do without it. I mean, just like to... The challenge of being up on a cliff and trying things is really important, so... And if um, you didn't have it, you'd be lost, right? Yeah. Like, it, what would you have been, you think, if you didn't have climbing? Oh, hmm. I mean, it's always maybe I don't know a veterinarian, a, a fireman. I, I, those hypothetical questions they don't work well with me because I, I can't think what things would be like in the past or what I would change with them. So it's always I'm more concrete. Like I found climbing, climbing found me. It it gave me guidance in life. The values that climbing embodies are the ones that frame my relationship to other people mm -hmm. sure and that's something that we can all learn from that requires trust communication clarity all these things that there are good meaningful ways to 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 be humans practice being yeah. the best human you can be yeah and they they don't let up <laughs> there's no shortcuts yeah so yeah. what is the next you know your next Next things that I got going, so um, in, enrolled at uh, Montana State in the geography program to uh, study recent climactic change, their so effects you're on... You're, you're going back to be a student. Yeah. So okay. recent climate change effects on Himalayan glaciers and local populations and their adaptations, so kind of understanding we know now that glaciers are shrinking in the Himalayas so how are the local populations going to adapt to them what what's the short-term um, challenges they face what's going to look like what are ways that they're doing sort of organically on their own that are methods that can make life better for them so it's interesting because I like the culture there and I like the glaciers so combining the two of them so it's nice it's good to have a, a summit that I can work towards and push towards, but it's an intellectual summit rather than a physical type of summit. Mm -hmm. Physical exercise and physical being the summit, but it's an intellectual. But you still have to open up your computer and write mm -hmm. and study and learn. And you still have to make time for the exercise and getting the blood Yeah. Time. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. where's, where's time? So. Um, you know, I've been asking people, like, what do you want to ask Conrad? And a couple one of them were, you know, how do you know your limits? Because you of all people have, have pushed past what most would say is possible. Where do you know when to say we got to go down? 
because I've, I've heard you say a thousand times now, like, well, it's not that bad. Yeah. Well, when you turn back, it's usually your self-preservation instinct speaking to you. So it's the, the most, the core of our brain, the most, the oldest, most reptilian part of our, um, but how do you know the difference between that and, and the self-doubt that you And can, chickening out. Yeah, that you, that you <laughs> yeah can, it's a tough one. You know, where you're, this might have been where you were comfortable before and pushing, you know, where there's healthy pushing your yeah. comfort zones and then there's the limit of, no, that's life, life or death. Yeah, ignoring fear. Usually it's so painfully obvious, you just is know. It? And so it's like, okay, I've got to get down. This isn't going to work out. And sometimes you're like... If you're looking for excuses to go down, you'll find them. You'll find plenty of excuses to, to give up and be lazy. But, um, yeah, it's Maybe. finding that balance. And it's a challenge. But, it's and a most people, different people will have different limits, right? Like, yeah. you know, from your experience would push on in some cases where other people would, would think they were in a life or death situation. Because that's built on experience. So mm -hmm. if I have more experience and each time I have an experience, a building block that goes into your knowledge of what you can do, you can then use that to base your decisions upon is that so what you consider good leadership More yeah experience experience i mean experience is the teacher and it, it is the basis of knowledge but it's a challenge because you're in the mountains you want the strength and the and the the drive of the youth but at the same time you are limited by uh, your experience and as you get more experience you're not quite as strong so where's that ideal moment in life where is it we're gonna find it, so it might always be changing too. Yeah, day to day. but if it, if you find it, then it might the quest for finding it is part of the journey, and then you might not it might not be as meaningful if you find it. So mm -hmm. when you're not looking for things, is when you find them. Mm. So keep your eyes open, be situationally aware. So that, that's something that benefits being a climber. So okay, two two more questions. Yeah. Um, most of my audience, I think, is going to be women and girls. And uh, obviously, you have a strong woman in your life. What would you say are the things that you respect most from her? And what is a strong woman to you? Like, what do you look for? Great question. Um, and Jenny, love you, because you'll listen to this eventually. You're awesome. But um, she's had to endure yeah lot. oh loss and my craziness and yeah there's and it's gone all the time and yeah it's um so a tremendous amount of um but understanding acceptance support all those things are key to it humans do well when other people give them the vote of confidence that they can do it so that's kind of a, a key part to it so that i i like that in jenny that she knows that I have to do it because I'd go crazy otherwise. Maybe that's too much of a cop-out, but um, yeah, it's fun to enjoy it, but it's also when something is your your life avocation, it's pretty amazing. So When you have someone that wants you to genuinely be happy. Yeah. She wants the best for you. Yeah. That's cool. So of everything, what are you most proud of? Most proud of is... Um, being with Jenny and raising the boys and that of, of last 17 of yeah of everything you've done yeah it's your relationship yeah with Jenny and, and the boys and seeing where they are and yeah after going through significant loss for myself I realized that life isn't about who I am or what I am that it's the more that you can give back the more that 
you have some sort of intrinsic reward. So being there for the boys and providing them with love, um, being with Jenny and traveling and, and seeing the world and creating good through the Kumu Climbing Center, these are all really good ways to, to go do it. So that's... Wow, the man that's done every peak and and had to probably face a lot of demons to get there and your biggest accomplishment is your relationships yeah and having the boys be happy and and our time together as a family so it wasn't what you did it was what you gave is what you're yeah i hope so (laughs) do you think you would have said that 20 years ago probably not maybe 20 years ago but maybe 30 years ago not we always had a good family value of, of giving back and so doing helping out with with other people that were less fortunate and being mm-hmm. able to mm-hmm. so that was instilled in you yeah mm-hmm. it was um and yeah there's we have a we're a very wealthy nation we're four percent of the world's population using 25 to 30 percent of the world's resources so yeah. We have a responsibility to give back to others, and that yeah. can be in the material, physical realm, but also in the intellectual and emotional realm. How do you think we're going to do this? How can we create a sustainable life that doesn't just ruin yeah. not only our planet, but also, like, we'll be the first to go. Yeah, yeah. and we're going to live out our life easily on the amount of carbon we have and well, we are, peak CO2, but, but yeah, what's it going to be like 200 years down the line? That's the real question. And here in the United States, the, I mean, yeah, here we are six months into a new um, political reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's really, it's different. And But the pendulum will swing back. We'll, um, we'll have leaders that are compassionate and fair and yeah, we don't have to go in too deep, but we know <laughs> our current president of the United States doesn't embody the values of climbing. So, Mr. Trump, President Trump, if you ever listen to this, I'm happy to take you and Barron out and climb Devil's Tower. We'll have a humbling moment, um, which is good. Because it, when you do that, it's a great way to set a foundation and when no one's ever said no to you in your life, you become, you think life is too easy. Life is hard. And when you realize life is hard, then you go to extra length to make life not so hard for other people. And then they come back and they make life not so hard for you. So mm-hmm. it might be a circular type of goodwill begets goodwill. And that's what the mountains have taught you. Yeah. <laughs> Go into the mountains. There. Yeah, they're good. And it's nice. And the, the beautiful thing about being outdoors and looking at a plant is that it's very random and chaotic, constantly changing, constantly evolving, changing with the seasons, changing with the time of day and everything like that. And we need that. We look into our, our handheld computers and we live in a rectilineal world defined by glass and plastic. We live in cement buildings with modified wood and everything's very human centric but when you step back and you go out into the woods and you walk on a trail and every rock is different every fern is different and every fern's going to die every rock's going to outlive us it puts things into perspective and that is a very curative and therapeutic way for humans to be so if you're facing a big challenge go for a walk in the woods walk for a mile hold hands with the person you're 
you're, you're trying to discuss things with, whether it's your loved one or your um, a work associate or someone that's in, in the political realm. And you'll, you'll get to a, a decision that's perhaps calmer and easier than if you do it in a hostile type environment. So nature is not a hostile environment. It's a very, even though it can be dangerous. It's the ultimate in collaborative. Yeah. Gotta, we're guests. Doesn't mean that it's easy, but yeah. <laughs> so. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you, Lindsay, for uh, bestowing unicorn this onto my <laughs> personality. I'm just hunting for them. So. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You to find them. So mm-hmm. that's good. So what is a unicorn? How is that defined? I could probably look it up for you. I mean, I'd say that uh, in so many... Across the board, there are the these uh, unique outliers that all of us are looking for, right? Yeah. To some guys, a unicorn is the their dream girl that they've never quite been able to find, right? And they're searching for. I think it can be whatever, whatever magic is still out there. You know, the reason I have uh, used it in my design work is because I'm trying to speak to young girls. I'm trying to make the outdoors more inviting and magical so that they feel like they belong and have a place out there yeah and uh and it means something different to everyone but all i know is that when you mention unicorn everyone smiles oh good and so you know it can mean whatever to to whoever but um it's fun there we go (laughs) young ladies if you're out there go hike in the woods get the good tidings of nature (laughs) come back give something back to your fellow humans mm, thank you yay yay <laughs> <laughs> Count and Angus just said yay like a little girl yay <laughs> <laughs> that was Conrad Anchor encouraging the unicorn in all of us I'm Lindsay Dyer this has been an episode of the showing up podcast and I'll see you in the